Om Mangalam Gurudevaya Devi Matriksha Mangalam Mangalam Bhakta Vrindevyo Sarva Lokaya Mangalam Stapakaya Chudarmasya Sarvadharma Sarupi Avatara Varishta Ramakrishnaya Mangalam Om Stapakaya Chudarmasya Sarvadharma Sarupi Avatara Varishta Ramakrishnaya Tidamaha Om Sarashiva Samarambam Shankarachara Majama Mashmarachara Prayantam Vande Gurum Paramparam Om Guru Brahma Guru Vishnu Guru Devo Maheshwara Guru Devo Param Brahman Tasmai Shri Guru Namaha Om Badrakali Namonicham Saraswati Namonamaha Veda Veranga Vedanta Vijastana Vahevacha Sri Ganesha Sharada Guru Yurmaha Hari Yur Yubhavaneshwadevye Namaha Jayama Jayama Happy to rejoin with everybody after a month break. We took July off. There was a couple of holidays on Wednesdays that we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to meet. So maybe we have a little something like that, something like a summer break. And so very happy to start where we, we were last. Oh, oh uh, a few points actually just on when when we are right now, not just what we did last month, but where we are right now as a holiday. Today, it's a very auspicious time right now. We're during the month of Shravan, a Hindu month, which is usually around July, August. Um, and Shravan is a very sacred month, especially for Lord Shiva. Every Monday is sacred for Shiva. Tuesday is for Goddess Parvati. Um, many people come to the temple to bathe Shiva Lingams and things like that on this day. Very auspicious time. Or during On this month, very auspicious. Um, yesterday, we celebrated um, uh, Nag Panchami. The, which, uh, and Panchami is the fifth day, so it's the fifth day of the uh, um, bright uh, um, half of the month of Shravan is Nag Panchami, where the snakes and the Nagas are worshipped. And actually, the Devi Bhagavatam, one of the sources of information about Naga Puja and Nag Panchami is from the Devi Bhagavatam itself, or the parent text, especially one form of the goddess called Manasa Devi, the, uh, the, and um, she's like the mother, and she's actually, it's her son that stopped the great snake sacrifice that we told that opening story at the beginning of these, the series of classes of how the snake sacrifice going on and the son of Manasa Devi stopped the sacrifice and therefore she got a special boon to be connected to the, to the Nagas like this. And in the Devi Bhagavatam, it mentions, um, why her name is Manasa. Manasa means mental, right? Man, uh, manas means the mind. So she is known as Manasa for three reasons, kids. One is that she is the mind-born daughter of Kashapamuni, Manasaputra or Manasaputri, uh, the mind-born daughter of Kashapamuni. She's also meditated on in the minds of yogis. So therefore her name is Manasa. The yogis meditate upon her in their mind. As well as she herself is a devotee of Krishna, the Rishta Devata. And so she always meditates upon Krishna in her mind. Therefore, her name is Manasa. And it mentions in the Devi Bhagavatam. I remember because last, yesterday we said we have uh, underneath our tree of our Shiva Lingam, we have a shrine to Manasa Devi. We worship her in the form of the tree and some important um, deities that are there. We have a deity, a rare tribal deity of Manasa Devi on, on our, in our, under the tree by the Shiva Lingam here at the temple. Where we do puja every year on this day. And I was remembering as I sat down to do a real simple puja, I was like, oh my God, I was like, what puja? I said, oh yeah, I remember. And the Devi Bhagavatam describes first you do this, first you establish your seat, then you do 
Panchadevata Puja, which means worship of Ganesha, Surya, Narayan, Shiva, and Durga. And then you invoke Panasa and it gives her mantra, like we use, like Larry remembering all that, all those details. And it said that the benefit of worshiping Manasa Devi is um, um, people worship Manasa Devi generally so that your children will not be bit by snakes. This makes sense, especially in India, where the number one cause of accidental death, maybe still now, is snake bite. It's a very serious problem. So fear of snake bite is very, very serious. But then it says the yogis meditate upon her for two reasons. One, to awakening of Kundalini. You can imagine the Naga symbolism of Kundalini is strong, right? And for mantra siddhi, to awaken mantra and, and uh, to make mantras living, to get the, the realization and the perfection of mantra sadhana. So that's we celebrated yesterday. And tomorrow, tomorrow is another auspicious day. It's uh, uh, Goswami Tulsidas, uh, uh, his uh, birthday, his advent day. He's the one who wrote the, um, I mean, known as the Tulsidas Ramayana, the, the Rama um, Manas Charita, I think. I'm, I'm mistaken, losing a syllable in there. And he wrote, the, of course, we know him best for as the author of the Hanuman Chalisa. So if you had chanting Hanuman Chalisa, it's especially a good day tomorrow to chant Hanuman Chalisa like this. There's a verse I often post every year on Facebook. I have to look for it and repost a picture, a beautiful picture. I think it's from a Krishnadas CD, the original. The first one we saw, the black and white. Later, I found, I think, the, a color version of it where it has Kali holding the sword, right? And then Hanuman is holding the sword, helping Kali hold the sword. It's a rare picture, right? And I remember Krishnadas would mention that Kali holds the sword, but Hanuman tells her just where on the neck to place it, you know, <laughs> he help, helps her in, in that seva. And I'm remembering there's a verse that the one that I'll post tomorrow that says, like, this story of Lord Rama in Tulsidas Ramayana is to our mountains of sin, just like the goddess Kali is to the demon, to the to the demon Mahishasura. Right. So we have the great demon Mahishasura and Durga kills Mahishasura. Right. Uh, um, so just, just in the same way, the story of Lord Ram kills all of our mountains of sin. So it's a beautiful connection like that. Just to, holy days are important and we're in a really holy time. And the next few next couple months, we have Janma, we have uh, uh, Janmashtami and we have Radhashtami and Ganesh Chaturthi and all kinds of uh, wonderful holy days. So it's, it's a pregnant time um, on Friday is Vara Lakshmi Vratam, another important holy day, especially celebrated in the South. It's the, um, uh, it's, it follows, it's, it's, it changes every year. It's on a Friday during a certain Friday uh, during the month of Shravan. I think the third Friday in the month of Shravan, I think is how it's listed. And um, it's mostly done by householders. Women will fast and things like that on that day. We bring Ma Lakshmi onto the shrine one of the important Lakshmi pujas. So, yeah, on, on Friday, pray to Ma Lakshmi for blessings. Vada Lakshmi, the Lakshmi that gives blessings and boons. So this is very auspicious. So where do we left off last? Speaking of divine blessings and boons, we, we are in a beautiful section from the Devi Bhagavatam, where after thousands of years of tapasya, of the gods performing thousands of tapasya in order to get a response and boon from the divine mother, Bhuvaneshwari, um, she finally appears first as an infinite light, this Paramaha, 
right, as an infinite cluster of light, right, described as shining like 10 million suns, yet cooling like 10 million moons, with the um, um, with uh, sparkling with uh, 10 million lightning uh, bolts like this, right? Very beautiful description, overwhelming description. And they became very overwhelmed and became even blinded by this light, right? Uh, and then that light and uh, Nilakanta, the, the ancient uh, or the medieval uh, commentator mentioned that light that Padan Maha rep represents also the, uh, the Brahman or the fourth state, the, the Turiya state beyond waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep. This uh, so it represents the self or Brahman or the highest. Then that divine light, overwhelming divine light, cluster of light, takes on the form. The verse that we 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 got to last week takes on a uh, takes on a form of a woman, right? In the previous verse, it says this this cluster of light need, did not have the form of a woman, nor a man. Nor of a neuter, uh, a neuter, neither or uh, um, uh, uh, of of combined or neither or indiscriminate or indistinct. It was neither. In other words, it did not have a gendered uh, uh, identity at all. Then it takes on a very specific gendered identity. It takes on a form, no longer formless, but it also takes on a very specific identity. Let me let's look at the verse real quick. Well, let's see where we are here. Okay, this is the verse where it says, that light appearing now in the form of a woman, charming and delightful. She was exceedingly beautiful of limb, a maiden in the freshness of youth. This is where we got to last last week, or last month, one month ago. Um, and we talked about that that part. She took on the, so it's, it's a quick recap of what we discussed, right? This revelation, right? This manifestation, revelation, or realization uh, to the gods, present presentation, a theophany, or you know, an encounter with the goddess, right? Shows a, is several important form, several important points. One is that it's a female form. In the, form the first it was neither man, woman, or neuter, but here specifically female form, right? That means that this is we 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 briefly last time talked about uh, we use the term you know, the difference between theology and theology. Right, the, the the meditation or, or contemplation of God in general, or the goddess specifically. So this becomes a revelation of the goddess specifically. So it's 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 the goddess, the goddess as supreme as Bhuvaneshwari. Her name's not given here, but at the beginning her name is mentioned. They did uh, prayers to goddess Bhuvaneshwari, and the form that's being revealed is the classic iconographic form of Bhuvaneshwari. And actually, as these verses go on, you see I have various pictures of added pictures, primarily of various pictures of posters and paintings of, of Bhuvaneshwari Devi, right? Some of them will not exactly match the form, like this form has six arms. The form that's mentioned here will move forearm. I'm mostly doing this so you could see, since we're talking about the iconographic manifestation, the manifestation of the goddess in her form, describing a form just to see different forms of the goddess because many of us even goddess even amongst us that worship goddess we worship kali or durga or lakshmi or radha we're not that familiar with Bhuvanesh. maybe we're not that familiar with Bhuvaneshwari. so to get a little flavor for her and to med begin to make because we're being asked i mean the gods are seeing her and this is being described to us for us to meditate upon upon her so this is, we show some forms of her also right so it's very distinctly a goddess, right? The goddess is supreme. 
She is Bhuvaneshwari. Bhuvana, Bhuvana means the world. It means uh, creation, creation, creation. That means the manifested world, the, the existing world, the universe, right? And Ishwari, Ishwara, come Isha, Ishwara, Isha means uh, controller, ruler, lord, something like this, right? And Ishwari is a feminine form of that. So it's the goddess or the female supreme ruler of the world, Bhuvana, right? And so one of her names is also Tri Bhuvaneshwari. And there's a name for Shiva as her consort, Bhuvaneshwara or Tri Bhuvaneshwara, right? And so that means the three worlds. And we think of Om, Bhur, Bhuvasvaha, Bhur, Bhuvasvaha. These are the three worlds, the, the earthly plane, Bhur, Bhuvaha, the atmospheric space type plane and swad the heavenly realms right the um so Buddha, so so these bhuvaneshwari is the goddess of the world or the goddess of the three worlds of all the three worlds sometimes even i in some early texts and you know these many books we read and i'm sure this is the case of with with you also we read different we read widely and we read whatever we can find and and Everything we read, even if it's not exactly accurate or or or, or very sophisticated, sometimes very scholarly, um, um, is still part of our coming, our, our learning about the goddess, right? We're we're learning about her from um, uh, these texts, right? So an early text on the Dashma Vijas mentions that Bhuvaneshwari is the goddess of space, as in the Bhuvaha, Bhur Bhuvasaha, right? But I've never found, and even today, we I, I double dipped into trying to find if, if she's uh, described anywhere as a goddess of space. She's a goddess of the three worlds, including space, the earth, the space, and the heavenly worlds. So, but, but the point is that she's, a, she's the ruler, she's the controller of everything, right? She's a, we've already seen as that Padamaha, the infinite light, she's the infinite Brahman the self of all, the four state beyond waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep, right? But she's also the one who is the controller, the Lord, Ishwara, or the goddess, the Lordess, if that's, I don't think we have the right, maybe I'm, I'm missing the right word, right, for uh, 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 the, um, the female Lord, sorry, the, the, the word Lord is a medieval uh, government, you know, <laughs> description, right, uh, limited in English language. Um, um, She's the supreme ruler. She's the supreme truth and the personal supreme ruler, Bhuvaneshwari. Right. We also mentioned in the last verse, she's young, a virgin, like a virginal guy. We talked about that. She's independent. Although she is connected to Shiva, right, as a consort of Shiva, or, con or maybe I would say Shiva is her consort rather than she's a consort of Shiva. Right, we mentioned that a little bit, but still, she she is independent. That's the idea that you have when you have mother goddesses that are also young or unmarried. Sometimes they're showing that they're the in they're in the independent goddess, right? And part of her nature being being um, um, displayed or discuss, discussed in these verses would be her maternal nature, right? She's it's not only a feminine nature, but her maternal nature, right? She's supreme. She is the absolute truth. She is maternal. She is the controller, right? Um, um, so let's 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 look at some of her. Uh, also, and so this is a realization. This is a presentation. She appeared to the gods in this form as Bhuvaneshwari, in this 
iconographic form, this form of a goddess, a personal deity, right? A, a, a um, um, the, uh, um, um, yeah, personal deity. We are also, this is not exactly a Dhyan mantra. Dhyan mantras we've talked about, these are mantras that describe the form of a deity, like we medit meditate upon the deity in this way. Ganesh, like it says, like, or example for Kali, she has long flowing hair, a garland of skulls. In her right hand, she holds a sword, or in her left hand, she holds a sword. In her right hand, she gives blessing. You know, this, she stands on top of Shiva, who lies beneath her like a corpse. It says she's surrounded by jackals. That's a Dhyan mantra. And one who, one should daily meditate upon this form of Kali in the mind and attain the four goals of life. So this is an example. I'm summarizing a short form of the Kali Dhyan mantra. Right. So this is not exactly a Dhyan mantra, right? The, there are texts that describe Dhyan mantras for Bhubaneshwari. The Sharda the Sharda Tilaka Tantra describes has has several important Dhyan mantras for for Bhubaneshwari. The uh, Tantrasada uh, um, also has there's many important places you can find uh, descriptions of her that we use in meditation to visualize. This is not exactly a Dhyan Mantra, but it is a Dhyan Mantra, right? We, as devotees who want to meditate upon, can use these verses to describe, it's going to describe her form. So we can meditate, close our eyes, or in, in our mind's eye, we can meditate, visualize, or contemplate this form, right? Um, right. Uh, uh, um, the gods in this story are not trying to visualize her. She's appearing in this form. There is a difference, right? And so that means, I, I think there's one of the things that this is, we believe of the Dhyan Mantra. There's a couple of different beliefs of Dhyan Mantras, is that the Rishis in ancient times or even modern times had experiences of gods and goddesses, right? And from their experiences, they wrote down what they saw. Or here, a sage wrote down what the gods saw as it passed down. Vyasa wrote down or spoke, and then later got written down, it got passed down. And therefore, the Dhyan mantras are compositions describing what the rishis or the gods or the ancient the ancient sages saw, experienced, right? So we can even do that now. There could be a modern example where Sri Ramakrishna saw saw uh, the goddess in this particular form. So we can create a Dhyan mantra theoretically from that form, right? And then and then the rishi of that Dhyan mantra is Sri Ramakrishna, right? He's the one that first saw this form, right? There's a there, like that. Um, uh, uh, so that's one one view that they what they saw they wrote down or they passed down, and therefore we don't have to imagine, right, uh, what what the goddess looks like, right? Somebody has saw her, somebody has seen her, or, or many many people have seen her and described her this way, right? There's another view is that what they saw is very much like what the gods first saw blazing like 10 million suns, cooling like 10 million moons, uh, tinged with uh, tinged with red and, and with 10 million streaks of lightning, right? Completely overwhelming, completely ununderstandable, beyond what the mind can comprehend, right? Then they catch their mind, bring their mind down and try to have some way to experience her when her the actual experience of her is beyond conception, beyond experience almost. She's the experiencer ultimately, right? So she's completely overwhelming, right? Bringing the mind, so I sometimes described it to myself, trying to understand this, the, the, the sages from their, 
from their divine experience, bring the mind down many steps, maybe a thousand steps. And then maybe this, then they, they bring it down and this is what they see, or they bring it down and describe in a language for next generations so they can contemplate that one that which is like 10 million suns, including like 10 million moons, 10 million streaks of lightning, 10 just red, right? You know, something that's beyond, so something that's not contemplatable, right? They give us a language of contemplation, right? And so then you end up with this language and lexicon of iconogra iconography, right? Where you have, she's, she, um, she's everywhere, right? She's all powerful, that you have multiple arms to describe her all powerfulness. Right or she's all knowing. You have multiple heads or multiple eyes, right? Or things like example of this, right? Um, or she the way she's dressed because she's the mother, or she has uh, large breasts because she's motherly and she nourishes everybody. You know, like pretty soon you end up trying to describe something that's be by the actual experiences beyond description. You bring your mind down to describe it so that we get a hint. That meditating upon these, we know something of that which is not describable, right? So we can we can use that to meditate, to direct our mind, to stretch our mind, to 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 uh, uh, focus our mind on 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 the absolute and get a taste for it. Sri Ramakrishna was fond of using this term that God is the only thing that's never been defiled by the lips, right? Uh, the term is utishta that uh, when something gets touched by the mouth in Hindu culture becomes unclean, becomes defiled. Right, uh, uh, um, Swamiji, is it ut utista or uch uchista? Uchista, I think, right? Which, anyway, uch uchista. Uchista means tasted from the mouth becomes defiled, right? He says even the Vedas have been defiled, right? Because they've been described by words, right? And described by mouth. The actual pristine experience cannot be described, right? What can be described already many stages down. Right. Uh, so that's another way of looking at these dhyan mantras of being just, and maybe even a way of interpreting this whole theme. First, they see something beyond description. Of course, even describing these 10 million suns and 10 million moons is a way of describing something that's beyond description. Right. Um, um, and then, or the, and then they get either they experience something more understandable, even though it's not that understandable when you think of many arms and like this. Right. But or it's being described so that we can think of who Bhuvaneshwari is. How do we contemplate the reality, which is Supreme Brahman and the maternal source and controller of all being, right? Bhuvaneshwari, Brahman and Bhuvaneshwari, right? So in pujas and in texts, you'll see this term, Atta Dhyanam, says now, now meditation, right? And it's, it doesn't mean now meditation that we should you know, it does mean closed right? but now atadhyanam, now meditation means on a form, a divine form. And we meditate and visualize the divine form, but each of those qualities of that divine form have symbolic meaning or represent or hit, give the mind something to think about, things that are not easy to think about. An example of this is of Shivalingam. Shivalingam have many, many layers of symbolism. Many of you probably know many of these layers of symbolism. But one of which, especially the form of the Shivalingam that's shaped like an egg, like a sphere, like an elongated sphere, that has been that's meant to show as per text, right? Some forms of Shivalingam are 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 are, are, are have other symbolism also, but the form of the, the egg form, one of the forms is that a shape 
that that represents something beyond form. So it's a shape we can think about that allows us that 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 doesn't let us that doesn't have an edge. It doesn't have an end. Usually, shape has a distinct edge and end corner to it, right? This is a shape that's that that's it's it's a symbol. The shape of the symbol of that which is beyond shape, even that which is beyond symbol, right? So that's an example. So many of these aspects of Ubaneshwari that we're talking about, the iconographic description, maybe what they're saying or what the sages have written for us to contemplate, it's not only meditating on her form but also on on profound aspects of her. Um, 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 ontological reality, the, 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 her real nature. So we can imagine what, of course, we maybe we can we can try to imagine what God's like, right? And if we were to think of what God's like, if God has a form. We can try to imagine what that form is. We can be caricatured, oh, God is an old man with a white beard. And, you know, that's become silly. People like to criticize religion as believing there's a God in heaven with a white beard. No text exactly says that, right? But you can see that people think, oh, that's true. We're just imagining something that, can't, that has no reflection in reality. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thought to which there's no correspondence in reality, right? And imagining could be like that. Something imaginary means, we mentioned last time, means not real. That's one of the meanings of imaginary, right? It's only thought of in the mind, right? But not in actuality, right? So the idea of these jyan mantras and the scene is that they're not imagining the goddess, right? It's a revelation of the goddess. She's revealing herself to them, right? What about us, right? This text is also not an imagination. This text also, if we take it as uh, as authoritative, as revealing from coming from the divine source, um, is also revealing to us, maybe not as direct experience yet, what the goddess is like, how to meditate upon her, right? And so, some Vivekananda, we've quoted this before in other contexts. He, he made this comment that visualization becomes realization, right? So this is different between imagination of course maybe there's no i mean there were just semantic games here between between imagination and visualization visualization is just imagining something graphically right you know it's not just a imagining the scene or something like that you're imagining a, a graphic image is visualization but visualize you visualize something he says that will lead to realization right it's and and that's a present atadhyanam means now visualize Right, that's a quality of 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 the tantric tradition. A a, a not universal, but it's a big theme within tantra. Uh, a characteristic of much of tantra is the practice of visualizing a deity as revealed, not just imagining, visualizing as revealed. Um, the gods, it was revealed in a in a in a in a in a, in a, in a, in a encounter, divine encounter, revelation of the goddess. But for us, it's revealed through the Vedas or here through the um the uh the Devi Bhagavatam, Devi Gita, where it's the text itself reveals the form, right? Swami, there's a Girish Maharaj, Swami Shivatmananda, Swami Shivatmananda Saraswati Maharaj, he's a um uh, the acharya of the Chinmaya mission in in tech in New York in, in Texas, and I think in uh, maybe Austin, Texas, perhaps. Um, 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 
wonderful Swamiji. Many years ago, he came and spoke at Kali Mandir about the a text by Shankara on 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 the goddess um, in Akshipanchikam, I think it was right. And I remember he made this because it's also describing Shankaracharya in the text, if it's attributed to him, beautiful description of of the goddess, right? And he says that we the 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 mind, the chitta, takes on the form of whatever you imagine, whatever you think about. If you think of your father, right, your mind takes on, and you can visualize your father, right. Your mind takes on that. The chitta takes on the form of your father. Right uh, or any memory, if your memory is your memory, your mind taking on the form of what you're remembering. Right. So similarly, he says that that these texts, they're he says that we it's like tattoo. I can remember when he was taking a talk, uh, uh, Prakash was sitting next to him, and Prakash, like many of us, is quite beautifully tattooed with um, a devotional tattoos of goddesses and Hanuman and Shiva and things like this. Right, our de uh, devotee. Um, and he says, just like you have these images, divine images tattooed on your body, right? These texts tattoo these images on the mind, right? That the image that the, the uh, he used that form. I mean, not mentioned the text this way. It mentioned that chitta takes on the form, but because of proximity to somebody who was tattooed with a with a goddess image, it was a perfect example that we can tattoo. We should tattoo. The, um, the the these images in the mind the mind takes on that form right each detail of the form that we're tattooing on the mind or contemplating or visualizing remembering the mind right is is gonna it's going to have or has so much meaning they're not meaningless right um of course you Humans and religionists, especially, are are meaning creating and meaning searching creatures. So maybe there's no meaning originally, right? But we look for meaning, right? And we think there must be meaning, right? And so that's the tradition of commentary on these texts: is that these 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 things have much meaning, right? They have symbolic meaning, they have um, cultural meaning, right? They'll have aesthetic meaning, and here I mean, and we'll talk a little bit about this today with some of these verses that some things use their their they represent a cultural understanding of something extremely beautiful or extremely erotic or extremely maternal that as westerners we don't have the same cultural background we have different things that mean those things to us right but some things will have they, they'll have um um uh use of uh, of, of culture culture and aesthetics uh, especially sanskrit poetic aesthetics is its own little its own um um Tableau we'll, we'll just, uh, of, of, of details, right? Um, it also has some of them are emotional, right? And um, um, what's the term? I, I just lost the term. Uh, something of the uh, what did um, oh, this is embarrassing. Um, Young describes archetypes. Archetypes, like <laughs> uh, uh, we now would maybe even look at these are even archetypes of the of, of of the subconscious or the unconscious. Maybe we can, as as modern people, with another bag of tools of meaning finding, right? We may we be able to find some of these things uh, universal archetypes, perhaps, right? Uh, but there is there is definitely culturally specific archetypes, right? So we can we can see. Um, one of the meaning, one of the things we should remember that I always think of it is that that the iconography, Hindu iconography, and tantric iconography, is a language unto itself. 
It's a way of speaking about God or the God about divinity. And it's a way of, and, and, and once you know the language, you can read images. You can read icon, icons. You can read what, oh, what, what she's holding. It'll have, you can know what it means. It's like you can read words and know what they mean once you learn how to read, right? right? And Tantra especially, Hinduism in general, not all schools of Hinduism, there's iconoclastic schools of Hinduism. Iconoclastic, I'm using the word very technically, meaning um, that are against um, icons. To some people, iconoclastic just means against tradition or breaking your th independent thinking like that. You know, that I'm meaning that very carefully. Um, and I, so one of our friends described Hinduism and as some schools of Hinduism as iconoblastic, meaning it creates images. It, there's an image, it images everything, right? It's the language of imagery is strong. So let's look with this, with, let's continue our, our, um, our, our verses here. So that light appeared now in the form of a woman, charming and delightful. She was exceedingly beautiful of them, a maiden in the freshness of youth. Right. This image is by an artist, Bhuvaneshwari, by an artist named Dr. Argya uh, um, Deep, uh, Deepa Argya, I think is his name. No, yes, Deepa Argya. Um, you can find his art on Facebook under Art Argya. Uh, um, he's an incredible artist, a, uh, a mostly doing goddess-themed art, and was great scholarship on Tantra in general, especially Bengali forms of, of esoteric Tantra. Um, and he puts it into his, he has a very unique style, right? Some people like his style, people, I like his style very much. It's not very realistic. It's meant to be highly stylized, but it's full of... Um, uh, tantric uh, knowledge and uh, language. It has a lot, tremendous meaning. This is describing this. This ver this uh, mm -hmm. painting is describing a scene from the from later at the end of the Devi Bhagavatam, where the gods go to the higher Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva go to the highest Manjeet, the the high her jeweled island heaven, and have a vision of her and have a realization based upon the vision. This is he's done many paintings on that vision and those themes in the Devi Bhagavatam, right? So it's worthwhile if you want to look at some really interesting art. Um, 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 uh, he has hundreds and hundreds of paintings and very good descriptions. Very often he'll give the Dhyan mantras, the mantras that inspired um, the painting that he's describing in the painting. So anyways, this one doesn't exactly fit the verses. I'm just trying to, like I said, fold in verses, fold in images of Bhuvaneshwari for our contemplation. So let's, let me get the verse here. Udyapina kuchad dwanva nidditam bojakun malam. Udyapina kucha. So he trans. So we use this translation on the screen is from uh, uh, Mackenzie Brown, C. Mackenzie Brown, who did the translation and commentary that we're primarily using for the book for those who are just joining. Um, uh, so it says, her full upraised breast put to shame the swelling buds of the lotus. Her girdle and anklets jingled with clusters of tinkling bells. So this seems, and it's a very, just describing her, you know, and her, she has a full upraised breast. She wears, and she has um, a girdle and a waist, girdle is a waistband here, and anklets of tinkling bells. So that's, we could just move on from that, right? But 
once again, searching for meaning and seeing what's being described here is a lot is being described here. And it's using some language that um, of simile, right? And Sanskrit poetics, right? And, and aesthetics that are, we, it's, it's its own language that, that in the Western tradition we have, like I said, we have a different language and different poetic. Um, um, if you ever read the Sandra Lahari of Shankaracharya, attributed to Shankaracharya, that's that you really see extremely elaborate descriptions and uh, poetical descriptions and similes of the goddess's beauty full of spiritual meaning but ex extremely high sanskrit poetics this is very simple and it's but you can see it's like her her breasts put to shame the swelling buds of lotuses right so that's that that's using cultural triggers right of, of poetry and a, 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 a poetry so we can um, investigate a little bit. Udyat means rising, right? Uh, 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 pina means full, swollen, round, right? Um, it's describing, these are descriptions of, of kucha means breast, female breast, specifically. And then it says, dvandva ninditam boja kunmalam, kudmalam. Dvandva ninditam means they're it, the, uh, uh, they're fighting right what are they fighting they're fighting the buds of the swelling buds of lotuses right a full a budding lotus not just open still a bud but about to open right because that is considered a very beautiful symbol right the lotus has tremendous symbolism and and use poetic use in in, in hindu uh hinduism and indian in general right but the breath, her, the two breasts are are competing with. This is where you get a unique style of poetry that we're not so accustomed to. Maybe we're not accustomed to, right? Um, um, they're competing with lotuses, budding lotuses, for beauty, right? And for um, 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 uh, kunmala means budding, full blown lotuses, right? So they're 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 for boja. They're competing, boja, here it says boja kun, kunmalam. Boja means enjoyment, right? So what's more enjoyable, right? Who's Who in the competition of what's more beautiful, what's more poetic, what's more auspicious, what's more, they're competing for the top position between Ma's um, upraised breasts and lotuses. Let's look at, I'm gonna, I have a picture of some lotuses here. Right, this picture here, the close of that's a budding lotus. That's what her breasts are being compared to. But the lotuses are losing. Right, the beauty of the of, of, of a lotus, a, a budding, a, a, a full budded lotus about to bloom, is 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 loses in the competition. Right, puts to shame. He worded it put to shame. Right. In comparison, the lotus is. The supreme symbol of beauty and spirituality and of potential, something about to bloom, right? But when the lotus, which is the envy of all flowers, the envy of all symbols, when the lotus sees Ma's breasts, this is the way the poetry works, right? Right. It says, in comparison, I'm nothing. It's it's so beautiful. Right, that I'm that that who am I? Who am I? Who am I competing? You know, I'm ashamed. And there's a lot of that. That like um that uh, this type of uh, poetic language, 
I'm remembering in the um, in the Chaitanya chart, Chaitanya Mangala, maybe it's there, a book on Lord Chaitanya, who describes that because Lord Chaitanya is born on the full moon, right? He's born on a full moon night. And it said when the moon, which is the most beautiful face, sees the beautiful face of Lord Chaitanya, right? Purna, the, the, the moon like face, he gets ashamed of how ugly he is compared to how beautiful Chaitanya is. And he covers his face in shame. And that's called an eclipse, right? So Lord Chaitanya is born on, on during the eclipse full moon, right? So that's a beautiful way of saying why there's an eclipse on, 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 on Chaitanya's birthday. But it's that same type of language. It puts the shame, you know, that, that type of comparison, you know. We don't, I mean, we have a different uh, category of, of poetry, but... Um, um, and then, then it says, Ratna kintini kajala sinjam manjira mekkalam. Ranat, ranat means the sound, giving sound. Kintini, kintini. So you'll see a lot of these, you see there's a little bit of alliteration and rhyming. Kintini almost sounds like jingling bells. It has that, these sounds will have... Um, um, these repetitive sounds like that are meant to um, uh, reflect what they're describing also, right? So tink, tinkini means tinkling bell and even has a kink, 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 kink kind of tinkling sound alliteration in it, right? So tinkling, so ranat kinkini kajala. Kajala, um, actually Swamiji was looking, we were studying, it seems to be like 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 running water, right? a little uh, like that. So almost like the tinkling bells could be like, remember this is highly poetic symbolic language, a metaphoric language is like almost like like running water, you know, that, that sound of bells and water and like this, right, right? And then sinjan means jingling, right? So what's jingling? It says manjira. Manjira is her, her means, um, manjira means uh, um, uh, anklets, ankle, 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 I guess ankle, I want to say, ankle bracelets, but I guess like we say anklets, right? Anklets are manjira, and then mekalam. Mekalam means a girdle. Makali has a girdle made of the severed hands of demons. That's described as mekalam, right? So that mekalam is, so the girdles are very interesting. So let's go through a few of these, uh, describe a little bit, right? By describing upraised breasts that put to shame swelling buds of lotuses. This is both the, the emphasis of, of breasts is highly maternal, right? Whenever you see this, especially in goddesses, right? Is meant to show extreme mother uh, motherhood qualities, right? Maternal, right? And fertility, right? And um, um, it's also a sign of I mean, in, in Sanskrit poetics of attractiveness, right? Of course, every, there's many different standards of attractiveness, and everybody has their own standards of attractiveness. This is pulling from a known reservoir of Sanskrit poetry, Indian poetry, right? Upraised, full upraised breasts, put into shame, swelling lotuses, swelling lotuses, growing lotus, about to open, which means young, in other words of saying, she, she has young breasts. That's This is a poetic, you have to take all things together to see what's actually being said. This is a description of a young woman's breath. In the previous verses, a maiden in the freshness of youth. Freshness of youth means she is around 16. That phrase 
in, in Sanskrit usually refers to like uh, this uh, Sodashi age around 15, 16, 17 years old, the blooming blooming of, of, of womanhood, right? So that's describing in this poetic language, full upraised breasts, put to shame, blooming lotuses means a young woman's breath, which is maternal, feminine, attractive, young. Young here means with a lot of potential because goddess is not young, she's eternal, right? Right, and maternal. The potential is also for maternal, maternal potential. She is a mother, right? And a comparison, of course, to the lotus. And we'll see many times in these next verses, her breasts are compared to lotuses. Her eyes are compared to lotuses. Her, um, um, uh, um, again and again, things are going to be compared to lotuses, right? Her lotus, like, and we hear her lotus, like somebody the other day, just yesterday. Yes, day before yesterday, somebody was here. On um on Sunday, whenever I guess if, anyway today's Wednesday on Sunday there was a gentleman here and he says Swamiji can I ask you a question he goes sure he says so Shiva is described as having lotus feet why are they lotus feet and I was like well you know because I I, I like five or different times they answered and I said I have no idea why they're lotus feet I have to think about this you know right because uh, we I, I even write letters to my guru your lotus like feet please accept my pronouns that your lotus like feet to who to which I pray to be you know the, these poetic introductory devotional um, uh, salutations that we, we traditionally do, right? It's like lotus-like feet. So we have to think lotus has many, many meanings, right? Of course, Shiva stands on a lotus, holds a lotus. You can do all these type of things. There's lots of lotus. But why does it make a lotus? Usually because he stands on a lotus, but there may be deeper meanings. So lotus, as we as we learning, as we probably realize, is highly used in in Indian aesthetics and highly meaningful in Hinduism, not just Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, um, um, uh, uh, Buddhism, Jainism, most Indian religions have a lot of lotus symbolism. Simply, you could say we can we can start listing things that the lotus represent. It represents beauty, it represents fertility, it represents prosperity, it represents um, uh, spirituality, and it represents eternity. Right. So you can see whenever. So and not sometimes, of course, we have to figure in use where it's going to fit. Right. But usually these are these are the, the classic markers. Beauty, fertility, prosperity, spirituality and eternality. Right. The, the symbols of the lotus. Right. Many deities hold a lotus, stand on a lotus, are born from a lotus, sit on a lotus. Right, are, are described as lotus-like qualities again and again. Now, there is a one of the one of the one of the powerful um, um, one of the reasons that lotuses are such a powerful symbol. The starters are extremely beautiful. There's not a no doubt if you if you see if you've ever seen a, a, a live lotus flower. And we get them very rarely here. And they don't, I mean, some people try to grow them, but we get them from India sometimes for special pujas. People send them to special um, flower shops that have the license to bring rare, rare uh, plants from India. Um, and they come closed, right? And then it's very, it's so interesting. You know, Yuli Usha is very good at this because that's, you know, when, she, when Usha goes to Dakshinishwar, I'll tell you a little detail. When she goes to Dakshinishwar, she's lucky by Ma's grace. She usually gets to go inside the inner shrine. You know, presidents of India have, don't go to the inner shrine. It's a unique opportunity uh, uh, to their connection there. 
And, you know, we, we, when we all go, we bring a basket of flowers and garlands and sweets and incense and the priests will, you know, will offer and bring it back. But what she always makes sure is she finds a shop that has closed lotuses to offer. Right. And the reason she does that, Kogar's Ma loves lotuses. It describes it. She's, she's a Komolapriya, one of, one of Ma Kali's names. She loves lotus flowers, right? So she, just for that reason. But she knows that what they'll do, the priest will hand her the lotuses from the basket and says, open them, because they know she knows that. And then she slowly peels the flower petals back, the outer lids, and brings them out. And that gives her, she says, more time in the inner shrine. <laughs> Because if you guess, she, she can go in and out in 30 seconds, or you could spend time to open each flower to, to offer, right? And so when we get them here, she showed us how to do it. It's so interesting. You begin to peel them open, and then how beautiful they open up. A great symbol of the blooming spiritual life, or your blooming heart, or your opening life and love, and like your conscious awakening consciousness like this. A very, very great symbol. Lotuses are an aquatic plant. But they grow in mud and grub. They, they grow in the mud of a lake or a pond, right? Uh, on dirty water, in muddy, uh, scummy water, you know? Uh, and their leaves spread on the outside of, of, of uh, their roots go into the mud. They uh, And their leaves spread on the outside of this dirty water or muddy water, right? But then from that mud and water comes, you, they, they, they can even come right at the top of the water, the rays sick you know, six, seven inches sometimes, they'll, they'll come out of the water, right, and then open, right? And when they open, they're so beautiful. They have a quality that they're waterproof. And they they have a, some waxy quality to the leaves that water, they don't stay wet, even though they're born in living water. And even though they came out of muddy water, right, they stay clean, right? That's a beautiful, another, you can see so many potential for spiritual symbolism, right? Of, of being born in the world or being born in the physical body or whatever we think, however we want to do it. And then from that, something divine is born, right? But also our real spiritual nature is untouched by the world, unsullied by the world. You can see that it would lend itself to a very powerful symbol, right? Right. <clears throat> so... It's one of the one of the reasons that the, the the we'll see lotus symbolism throughout, right? To the girdle, just a quick mention on the girdle. The girdle, um, uh, um, girdling. I think we like gird up your loins or something like that. You know, it's like we use that like uh, uh, having focus and control, right? And there is a ceremony done at the upanaya, the sacred thread ceremony is done. And traditional culture to little, little young boys when they get their sacred thread, they also get a a girdle made of munja uh, grass, which is a holy grass, right? Um, uh, munja girdle. Um, that is uh, that is because now they're they're not just little boys anymore. Now they they have to be adults. They have to be, enter the adult world of study, a study of the Vedas, and along with the study of the Vedas comes a lot of restriction. A lot of self-discipline, right? So the girdling is a symbol of control and of discipline, of self-discipline and self-control, right? Um, the munja gets used out of, made out of munja grass there because munja grass is a symbol of purity and purification, and so it's designed to keep pranas moving upward for the young, a young boy's uh, celibate you know, studenthood, you know. So that's part of that uh, purpose. Uh, not exactly a chastity belt, but a chastity 
inspiring belt, you know, it's uh, designed for, for that purity. For the goddess is different. She, hers is that of tinkling bells, right? And tinkling bells, also her anklets, right? Her, uh, the manjira. Uh, um, and Ma Kali at Kali Mandir has little tinkling, um, um, she has uh, ankles, anklets, right? And that's going to be a quality. Not many gods will also, Krishna will also, I think, wear, wear his anklets with, with bells on them, right? Um, dancers will wear anklets with bells on them, right? Ank dancers that wear anklets with bells on them, part of their initiation, not initiation, their, their graduation, a, a, a young in, in traditional dance culture, Bhartanatyam and um, um, uh, Udissi dance like this, um, after many years of study, they 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 do their first public dance. Um, um, I'm forgetting the name right now. Um, Arangam or something like that. It's called um, one of the girls that grew up at Kali Mandir. You know, before she was even born, she was at Kali Mandir. Recently came to Kali Mandir before her last Saturday was her uh, was her her big performance right all her family and friends they rent the studio get musicians and she does an hour long or an hour and a half long dance performance to show that she's now qualified to enter the real stage she probably won't become a professional dancer right just part of her culture right but a professional dancer studies 12 13 years before they're allowed on stage to perform they have to master something and when they master it and they show that they've mastered it and they're, they're coming out party they're they're i guess in in music school and things like that, we had our recital, our senior recital or something where you, part of graduation from music school, we do the same thing here, right? They bring to the temple their ankle bells, right? And and you very often, the way for the dancers, they're, they're often in a leather kind of like cuff or like soccer or a, a thing that goes around, ties around the waist, often with leather. And usually we don't touch, bring leather in the temple and we don't, wouldn't touch the shrine with leather. If we break the rules for this, this will actually touch Ma's feet, which was the ankle bells, right? And also anything that touches Ma's prashadam, we would never touch our feet, right? That, 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 you know, and prashad would never, we never give prashad, like if somebody offers socks to Ma, we wouldn't give him as prashad because we put, then our prashad, we put them to our feet. That could be a great offense. The exception, again, is ankle bells, right? Because Ma wears ankle bells. And when we dance, when these girls dance, when boys or girls dance for Ma, they embody her. It's her dancing. Right, so ankle bells are one of the major characteristics of a, of the goddess. Bhuvaneshwari and other goddesses will have ankle bells. So much so that you'll even hear, you know, like that's a common thing. Sri Ramakrishna in the middle of the night at Dakshineshwar, he wake up and he hear Ma walking through the courtyard. Could he hear Ma from the shrine room? Nobody else saw her, but she she she'd walk. She'd walk the temple courtyard at night, right? People could hear her ankle bells in the middle of the night. You know, that's that type of um, devotional um, experience, right? Um, is a common. That's a common thing. Is that the the sound of Ma's ankle bells, her tinkling bells, are this are the indicator of Ma's presence. They're very auspicious, right? Ma. It also is um. That means also that this realization, this presentation, this experience of the goddess is not just visual. There's a sound to it, right? They don't just see the goddess, 
they hear the goddess. And the first thing to hear the goddess is her tinkling ankle bells and her tinkling waist belt. So it's very, very interesting. Let's look at the verses here. Where are we here? Her full upraised breast put to shame the swelling buds of the lotus. Her girdle and anklets jingled with clusters of tinkling bells. So I shall be disciplined because I totally want to jump into the next verse, but I won't. So we can keep, we, we go into this, because uh, 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 we can imagine now the next thing will be her necklace, her bracelets, like this, and, and uh, um, some her crown, beautiful things would be described with great meaning. So we didn't get too far. We only got one verse, right? And um, my idea actually was that the rest of her description could probably be described in one talk, one, one, in one meeting. But we needed to, I wanted to back up and talk about just the nature of the visual uh, experience of her, the, the iconographic presentation and, and, and the nature of her, another swipe at nation of her, nature of her symbolism. Um, um, I think it's important. But we'll, we'll end it. Let's see, let me double check my notes. Oh, Guruji? Yes, Swami, Swamiji. Um, what is that sloka you're talking about um, dancing for Ma? What was that sloka you oh, quoted? Yes. The other I have day? to make sure. I have to, I have to ask Saru again, because she is the one I learned it from. Um, maybe I'll have um, Ram Priyadas is going to be in Rochester tomorrow. So maybe he can ask and get the verse from her. Right, I'll, I'll text him. Um, um, but it's something along the lines, right? Uh, that that when you sing, because she's a dancer and she's a dance teacher, our friend Saru, uh, um, goddess devotee. Um, when you sing for Ma, Ma will come and listen to you, right? So that's very nice to know. Those of us who sing, I'm a singer, not a professional, but I sing for Ma as part of my spiritual path. I sing for her and sing to her that she comes and listens, right? But when you dance for her, right, she comes and dances with you. She dances, maybe dances with you or dances as you. She, you know, it's not clear. That's the thing I need to find out what the verse really meant. They're very, very special about that. So as a result, we're very, like I said, we're very tolerant of the of, of, of dancing bells, of dance, of the, uh, the ankle bell for dancers. And most of these girls and boys also, although generally most dancers Indian tradition, Bharatanatyam, like that, are probably, I imagine, about 80% are female, right? Um, uh, uh, when when they do their big performance, their, their big performance on stage in front of their family and friends, right? That's for their family and friends. That's to show what they've done. And they can see how much work, how much years of discipline and mastery it takes, right? But before them, they first come to a temple and dance in front of the temple dance in front of the deity, in front of Ma, in front of Jagannath, in front of Natarad, Shiva, right? That's very important. They offer their bells and then they do their first official dance in a temple for the pleasure of the God or the goddess. And now we, if that verse is true, then the God will, the goddess will dance with them, not just watch. The mood may be there, oh, we, we want them to see my dance, right? But it may be something more profound than that, you know? And then they'll perform in front of their friends and teachers and 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 um um uh, yeah their their family like this to show what they what they've done right we've attended many of these dance performances 
um, 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 uh, not in a very long time. In the early years, we used to attend more. But we've, but still here at Kali Mandir, like I said, just last weekend, the offering was done for Ma. I don't know, we've probably done a thousand over the years. <laughs> hundreds at least, maybe not a thousand, but hundreds and hundreds of, which is so beautiful actually, that that, that tradition, we were talking because uh, um, uh, Nandita, uh, I think Nandita Behara, I think is her name, the, the teacher of the girl that danced here, who danced here, right? Um, She's been teaching. She teaches Odissi dance. That's one of the they are the form of dancing in uh, in Puri Arissa. It's a little different than the Bharatnatyam that many people have probably seen South Indian style. It's a different a different uh, a temple dance tradition, right? But hundreds and hundreds of people have learned dancing from her. Right? Usha was saying you should win a cultural award, right? And I'll vouch for the award, right? For keeping a huge part of our Indian and Hindu culture alive uh, by, through this dance, like you said, most of the girls won't become. Some became professional dancers, right? Most it's just a way of living and experiencing their their uh, an important part of their culture. And along with it, not only the devotion of music and dancing for God and all the discipline, right? But it's respect of parents, respect of the guru disciple relationship. So many things are. Are, um, and all the stories of Hinduism, the gods and goddesses that they, they have to learn all the stories in order to dance the stories, to tell the stories, right? You see how incredibly important it is. It's a very, it's a, one of the, I think one of the, the, the most inspiring things I think that happened at Kalimandir culturally is for the passing on of culture. At least this part of the culture will continue as so many things that get lost through you know, being living Indian culture and Hindu culture in a non-Indian, non-Hindu land, right? That, that many things get lost. But this is something beautiful. Om Jai Mal Jai Mal. Any comments or questions? Discussions? Om. Om Om Om. Guruji? Oh, Krishna Chaitra, tell me. Hey, Ma. Hey, Guruji. Um, thank you very much for your class and explaining the uh, the poesy, the poetic uh, symbolism. Mm. Something I've been thinking about for a while. And yeah, sometimes hearing that lotus feet type thing. Uh, well, <laughs> anyways, yeah, it really explains the deeper level. So I really appreciate that. And uh, so on the Chaitanya Bhagavad, I was listening to that during the break, and uh, I, I really couldn't appreciate some of the poetic yeah, yeah. Uh, aspects of it. And um, yeah, it definitely takes <laughs> your, your breakdown to, yeah. to appreciate that, you know. So thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, I just got two, uh, two questions here. Uh, one of them is regarding, you mentioned uh, just now about Sri Ramakrishna hearing Ma's ankle bells. And um, you said it was in the middle of the night. And as I'm, a, I'm kind of a night owl per se. I'm not that by nature since I was young. Yeah. Um, and I prefer doing sad. I mean, I like you know Ramalhurta and all, but uh, yeah. by nature I do that at midnight. So yeah. I'm curious, uh, what time did Sri Ramakrishna hear Ma's ankle bells dancing through the courtyard? And, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Ma's time is midnight. Right, okay. uh, you know, there's different. I mean, I mean that that uh, that mean that's when he saw, but or when he heard, but uh, uh, different different deities have special times, right? 
And so Kali, especially, her time is midnight. And many of her oh, special okay. sadhanas are done at midnight. Right? That, and, and, okay. and midnight isn't always 12 midnight. Midnight is the midpoint between sunset and sunrise. Right? So right mm. now, probably, I think midnight is probably around 1230 at night, 1235 or something like that. Proper midnight. Mm -hmm. Just like proper noon is not always noon. It's only noon a couple of days a year. Right, it's but mm -hmm. it's a time between sunrise and sunset. If you have an app for um, um, there's that there's that the uh, GCal app that the Vaishnava app for when to do your sandhya, uh, um, and it'll, uh, you give it a you where you are and it tells you when the noon when proper when sunrise is when sunset is, and when noon is, right? You can see and the noon changes if you want to do sadhanas at noon, for instance, a new Gayatri, right? Usually, as far as I remember, right, if you have that app, the opposite is almost like if it's six, not always. That's not a weird case. But anyway, you can you you can help. You can use that to figure out when, when proper sunrise and sunset is, and then try to figure out when the proper midnight is for special sadhanas, uh, for 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 kali. In the in the Kapura Stotram, I think it's Kapura Stotram, of uh, a very esoteric text for God for kali worship. It describes that her sadhanas are done at midnight, right? And then the commentary. Um, uh, on that symbolic commentary, what what that means is midnight means a couple things. It means it means in between sun and moon, between night and day, right? So midnight there means nishashumna, neither ida nor pinda, oh. neither day nor night, and midnight is in the middle point. So that's sometimes symbolic of that also. And, but also, the period of midnight, the actual time at, mid at midnight, is the external in in time manifestation of that inner reality of the shashumna, right? So so you know that's a time when the uh, midnight sunrise sunset and and um, proper noon is the the pranas are automatically in shashumna. So there may be something like that, and even maybe the sounds also come from that. Who knows who how to understand that? But I don't remember exactly. I remembering various people's experience, including Sriyamaka's descriptions of of seeing her or hearing her uh, um, like this. But I don't remember exactly what time. But, but I, in my mind, if it's not midnight, it should have been midnight, because that's like the time. And also, Dakshineshwar at night is very special when the crowds leave. Um, I've never been there the whole night. So I mean, Ambikanan has been there uh, on one of the, because the, they do special, special like Shamakali Puja, Pratantakali Puja, Falaharni Kali, the three main Kali Puja of the year. These are night pujas. They start around 10 o'clock at night and go to about 2 in the morning. It's over that midnight period. Uh, um, so, Amidji, do you know, do you remember anything that Takor is hearing? Or I'm just, I don't, details I don't remember. No. Yeah. I don't remember any of the details yeah. about like when yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But midnight's a good time for Sadhana if you're up, you know. And oh, okay, so, perfect. So, so is so is Baramahurta, but it's I think our lifestyle sometimes midnight is. I remember there's a funny story. Uh, uh Das, the old type of president here in Laguna, he was on his walking Laguna Beach, walking from his apartment. We a block away from the temple they rented, and walking to Mangalarati in the dark, you know, 3 30, 4 30, and 4 in the morning, walking to, to wake up the deities and working like that. And he's passing somebody in the alley coming from, you know, Laguna Beach is a is a um a nightlife spot also has bars and clubs and things like that, right? And so somebody's walking by and the person walks by and says, good evening or good, good night. 
and he says, good morning. <laughs> you know, they pass each other. <laughs> you know? And what a different consciousness. One's waking up to go worship, one's finishing his night at partying, coming back home. But also I think that's real, that's also the midnight in between these two, these two points, you know. But oh um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm thank you so much, Oh, you were the second so question. Yeah, kind of a quick one. Um, yeah. in regards to uh just thinking back to the previous verses and uh, all of the religious doing their sadhana, um, we kind of hear this uh, in terms of Ganeshaji and uh, how you know he's really the doorkeeper to Mother Parvati. And I remember you mentioning and and uh, Pod being lecture of uh, Ganeshaji's appearance day of how um, another Urana, he appeared from the bubbles of Lalita Tripura Sundari. And, um, but in terms of Bhuvaneshwari, uh, in, in this text and, and the Devi Gita, um, is Ganeshaji, yep. you know, involved at all? Or? In the Devi Gita, he, I don't think he's mentioned, but he is mentioned in the Devi Bhagavatam, the larger text, the full text there is. And, and actually very often, there's a term that gets used, Durga, the mother of Ganesha, right? So there, and, and so there is, there is a, actually I was like, interesting you bring this up because I was thinking it's not directly part of our, of the of, of Devi, Bhagavad, Devi Gita, right? But whether or not to bring it up as we were approaching, whether the place to bring it up, there's unique, very unique tantric ontology of Bhuvaneshri in the Devi, in the Devi Bhagavatam, where Ma, Bhuvaneshwari appears in five primary forms, one of which is Durga, the mother of Ganesha. Very specifically, she appears as Radha, she appears as Saraswati. You know, there's a very, which I've never found another, this particular collection, I have to you know, fresh, I have to refresh my mind a little bit. A long time ago, I was I worked on it and tried to organize it and put it into a chart. It was a little complicated because we're not accustomed to it. But Ganesh, the stories of, I'm not, I don't remember if the story of Ganesha is directly just like his, about his birth. But he's mentioned, I remember that line, that Durga, the mother of Ganesha, that this that meaning Parvati, that Durga is identified with Parvati as one of the Shaktis of, um, of, of, of Bhuvaneshwari, right, mentioned, right, in the unique kind of ontology of the Devi Bhagavatam. But I'll have to, it, it came in my mind today and yesterday, so maybe maybe you you asking the question will reinforce, reinforce me looking a little bit more. Because the Devi Bhagavatam is... 18,000 verses, you know, so it's, uh, it's easy to get lost and forget something. I think I read that years ago, and I don't remember it and where it is. And so I have to, I have to, I have to search it again, but it was inspired in my mind even today. So I'll, I'll look up, I'll look a little more. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ruby. I really appreciate um, that. Thank you. Anything else? Boom, boom, boom. I was all excited to talk about Ma's earrings, but we're not there yet. <laughs> Ma has very beautiful earrings. <laughs> all right, I guess that that if that, there's no your last chance, not last chance. Yeah, another chance next week. <laughs> good, good, good. All right, dear ones. Um, so tomorrow, remember, tomorrow is Tulsidas Jayanti. So if you don't, if you read the Tulsidas Ramayana or at least chant Hanuman Chalisa, it'd be very nice. 
uh, um, it's a very beautiful and remember he is such an important personality and 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 um really north india is what it is partially because the hinduism we have now in north india especially is largely because of the influence of tulsidas right his his influence can't be ignored and and and, and our understanding of devotion um, so much comes from him. Sri Ramakrishna quoted him very often. So, Jaima, Jaima. All right. What do we got here? I'm going to change views so I can see people here. Jaima, Jaima. Makoto, Jaima. Durgadasi, Giriji, Namaskar, Jaima, Jaima. Atparam, nice to see you. Jaima, Jaima. Shelby. Jaima. Yes, my everyone's here. Shweta, Ashton, we don't see, but we know you're there. Nanda, we don't see, but we know he's there. All right. Until next, until next Wednesday. Jaima, Jaima, be well. Sri Guru Maharaji ki jai, Mahamaya ki jai, Swamiji Maharaji ki jai, Bhuvaneshwari Devi ki jai, Tulsidas Maharaji ki jai, Ma Dakshineshwari Bhavatarani Dakshina Kali ki jai. Hari Om, Hari Om, Hari Om.